Hey friends, welcome to Conversations with Kenzie, a podcast hosted by yours truly, Kenzie Brenna. No topic goes unturned here. We talk about everything with everyone. We like to get raw and sometimes we get heavy and sometimes we swear. So I'm warning you now. Also, we are working remotely. So audio quality between host and guest may differ. Lastly, check out our show notes for giveaways, fun promotions, or discounts to our favorite stuff. Enjoy the show. All right. Hi, Sandy. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Today has been, we were just chatting, a very warm day. Loving it, but needed to take a cold shower before (laughs) chatting with you. I hear you. How about you? How's your day going? It's pretty good. Um, I've spent most of it inside today, just, you know, working on tasks that I have following this last two really heavy weeks of activism. Mm. Um, So it was a little bit slower today, which is kind of nice. Mm, Yeah. Like doing things like, like laundry and like cleaning up and like, you know, resting and all of that stuff. Yeah. And washing my hair, which is a task for anyone with super kinky hair like mine. It's like you need a good few hours. So, you know, it's nice to be able to have that time. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And then afterwards, I'm sure that it feels like such an accomplishment where you're like, I did that. Like you did the few hours and then you're like, okay, now I feel like I need like a medal or something. Yeah, I felt like more of a human <laughs> yeah. uh, in the last couple of weeks and feeling pretty good about being able to just uh, feel a little bit more normal today. Um, you mentioned that the last few weeks have been like really intense regarding activism. And for the listeners who don't know who Sandy Hudson is, would you give us a little bit of your background story? Because you are very well known in Canadian activism. And actually, funny story, when I told my partner that I was interviewing you, he like lost his mind. It was really amazing because he's <laughs> a really, really, really appreciates your work and has followed your work. And so for those of you, for those of you who are listening, this is a very, this is a wonderful big guest that we're having on today. And so could you tell everybody a bit of your background story of who Sandy Hudson is? Sure. And thanks to your partner. I really appreciate, um, you know, when I hear that kind of feedback that we've been able to to reach so many people, it just feels really, really really great. It feels like we're having the type of impact that we need. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I'm Sandy. Uh, I'm a girl from Toronto and I am an activist. I started Black Lives Matter Toronto and the Black Lives Matter presence in Canada. And I also have done a lot of other types of activism. Like I I did a lot of student movement activism, activism around education. But my focus in the last few years has been around anti-Black racism. And so to that end, uh, we've also started the Black Legal Action Center, which is a legal aid clinic in uh, Ontario that focuses on providing uh, affordable services, affordable and free services to, to people who need it, and also test case litigation. And uh, in the last couple years, I guess, we wrote um, some of my colleagues from Black Lives Matter and myself uh, put together a contributed volume, a book with a bunch of other writers across the country called Until We Are Free, Reflections on Black Lives Matter in Canada. 
And I also have my own little podcast uh, that I do with Nora Loretto called uh, Sandy and Nora Talk Politics. Very creative, I know. Um, which uh, uh, it focuses on Canadian politics and kind of a, a critical perspective uh, on Canadian politics. And uh, yeah, you know, I just, I do a bunch of stuff. I'm a, I also write and I'm currently in Los Angeles uh, studying law at UCLA. Oh my gosh. Yes. Very hyphenated. <laughs> yeah. So many, so often people are like, can you just like tell us what you do? And I'm like, I don't really know what to say. It's just like all the things. Anytime I see like something where I can be helpful, I'll just be like, let me go over there. <laughs> so all the things. Yeah, for sure. I create, I do this. I'm an activist. I'm studying, which means I'm a student, but I'm also doing, I'm a writer and also a podcaster. It's a big list. That's a lot. I'm curious because you have such a voice in Canadian politics and um, being an activist here in Canada. Do you find that when something really big happens in in politics, in the news, that only not only then, but that everybody's like rushing to get your attention, everybody's rushing to talk to you, to get your opinion on stuff. Yeah, um, definitely. Yes, I definitely feel that way. And I, you know, it it's exhausting, but I also feel uh, like it's a really good opportunity um, for like mass education. Um, I look at it as, you know, like people are interested in talking to me, sure, but how can I deliver a message that is going to move society to the next level of understanding about a certain issue. And so, you know, when Black Lives Matter kind of really, the last time we really um, got a lot of attention was in 2016. And at that time, we were trying to educate people about carding. In 2014, we were trying to shift the way that Canadians spoke about racism when it came to Black people and get people knowledgeable about the idea that there is a type of racism that is specific to black people called anti-black racism. And we were successful in making sure that people were educated on these two particular topics, which allow us to get to today where we're able to talk about defunding the police uh, as a result of people knowing uh, a little bit more about the the way that uh, anti-black racism affects us. And man, like, um, what an opportunity it is to do all of this education work that reaches tens of thousands of people at a time. It's uh, mm. fantastic. Mm, absolutely. I think that that's a really that's a really amazing position to hold because also the flip side of that is the exhaustion that comes with your work and holding that space where you have to talk about these things over and over and over again. Like I'm about to ask you about the your experience with CBC and how they messaged you and then they found someone else for the interview and all of that. And I know that that, can, that stuff can like really weigh on a person and then retelling stories over and over again or retelling messages when you're like, we've been out here, we've been saying this for the last hundred years. You know, I know that that stuff can get really tiring. So it's, I feel like it's a really generous perspective to also feel like it's really empowering to be able to have that, have that platform, um, be able to speak to thousands of people. It's 
really, it's amazing. Um, and, and going along with that, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with the CBC and what happened with the recent kerfuffle with it? Yeah, sure. And I mean, definitely everything that you just said um, is, you know, you're right. It's a generous position because we should be <laughs> really frustrated about it as well. Because, you know, we did start the, the defund the police discussion back in 2016 when we were uh, talking about why we didn't want the police at Pride. Um, we mm -hmm. were talking about defunding the police, but it didn't pick up quite in the same way that it has now. So, yeah, with the mm -hmm. CBC, after George Floyd was murdered in the U.S. and Regis Korczynski Paquette was killed, um, we here in Toronto, um, or there in Toronto since I'm in LA, uh, we got a whole bunch of calls from Canadian media, not about uh, Regis Kortinsky Paquette, because Canadian media rarely responds to th this type of killing and death and anti-blackness uh, from the police uh, locally. They almost always want to respond to what's happening in the U.S. And so I got a call or I got a Twitter DM from a CBC producer who asked me if I would be willing to come on her show to talk about George Floyd and also to talk about uh, Amy Cooper, who was uh, the person who called the police on a black man in uh, in Central Park in New York uh, when he asked her to put her dog on a leash. And I responded to say, well, are you going to also talk about Regis Korczynski Paquette, who had died just the night before? And like, I said that I was interested in talking about the Canadian parallels and the local issues. And the person who, the producer who reached out to me responded to say, look, we're really only interested in talking about American racism. We have a short period of time, which is eight minutes, which for anyone who's ever done interviews on radio, that's a very long, that's a long time. That's mm -hmm. a long interview. <laughs> uh, we only have eight minutes. We want to talk about American racism and we do not have time to talk about Regis Korczynski Paquette, though it is uh, a serious issue. And I was like, okay, well, um, we can do the pre-interview, which is um, one of the things that happen before you do an interview uh, on the CBC. Usually they'll call you beforehand just to make sure that you know how to put words together. <laughs> um, and so uh, we scheduled the pre-interview and I just resolved to uh, talk about Regis Korczynski Paquette during the pre-interview so she could see that it wasn't going to uh, endanger the interview at all. So anyway, it was going well. The pre-interview went really well. I managed to bring up Canadian issues at the um, while she was talking to me about uh, George Floyd, and it was all very smooth until we got to the last question, where she said, well, what do you think is next for activists in this fight? Uh, where do we go from here? And I said, you know what? Honestly, at this point, if we want to have a serious conversation about how to deal with anti-black uh, racism in police de police departments, we have to have a serious conversation about defunding the police. And I started to make my arguments. I, I was talking and then she interrupted me and she said, I'm sorry, I, I just want to make sure that I heard you correctly. Did you just say defund the police? And I was like, well, well, yes, because, you know, right now in Toronto, they receive over one billion dollars in funding. And, and she was like, uh, OK, um, great. That's great. Uh, I, you know, will circle back to you. There's a lot of other producers uh, chasing the story. We're talking to a number of people. Not sure if we're going to be able to get you on the air specifically, 
Um, but I'm going to circle back if we can. Um, you know, there's lots of us working on this, so just not sure. Um, thank you so much for this <laughs> pre-interview. And as someone who's been on the CBC multiple times over like 15 years, <laughs> it was like, I have never heard a producer say anything like that to me at the end of a pre-interview. So I was pretty sure that I was not going to be on the air. Um, and she told mm. me after midnight Eastern time that, oops, sorry, I didn't get back to you. We did choose somebody else. Mm. Oh, my God. So it's interesting because you brought up Regis Korchinski Paquette. And that, I guess, was like, OK to her. But then was when you crossed the line with defund the police when, when she was like, oh, I'm going to reel it back in. Yeah, entirely. It just sounded like she was like, whoa, you are talking about things that we need like that. The type of black person we need to speak to is the type of black person who's going to say what when we say what's next is going to mm. say, we need to recognize our humanity in one another. We need to hold hands. We need to sing Kim Kumbaya. <laughs> like I, <laughs> she was like not having the concrete solutions that would um, lead to change conditions that would really change the lives of people, of, of Black people living in Toronto and Canada. And I should say that the pe person that she ended up booking uh, was a Black person from America, a professor who later found out about, um, you know, like the fact that they uh, did not want to talk about like Canadian racism and so on and later tweeted like, this is an issue. Like I, you know, I, mm. if, if, if Canadians are going to come to me to ask uh, about these issues, they also need to be asking about these issues at, that are occurring locally. Oh, gosh, it's so disappointing. And I know that in influencer spaces, we've talked about how Canadian media doesn't pick up on on Canadian influencers at all until America has picked up on Canadian influencers. And only mm -hmm. then will Canadian media like then follow behind. I, I don't I I mean, I know why they're like that, but like it's another podcast episode. What about defunding the police do you think was like too radical for her to hear that it couldn't be put on the air well i you know i understand that like i mean certainly before two weeks ago that sometimes when people hear the the words defund the police what they hear is uh get rid of the only thing that provides safety in our in our culture but i was like explaining to her like on the line and she kept interrupting me what it truly actually meant. And I'm fairly certain that they just thought um, that that position was just too extreme to have a discussion about in Canada. And I think that it's been proven over the last two weeks that that's not only um, is it not too extreme of a position, it's a widely popular position. And yeah, I, I feel very certain that that's the reason because uh, Canada Land actually uh, leaked an email to me uh, that the CBC was you know, it was a producer or some sort of executive who was uh, who sent an email uh, to some producers on the television show, The National, which is a mm -hmm. news television show. And they were considering having me on. And uh, the email that was leaked to Canada Land said, OK, well, we can have her on. We don't want her to discuss her experience um, with the producer uh, on for The Current, but we can have her on to discuss anti-Black racism right now. But um, defunding the police is an extreme position in the Canadian context. And if she brings that up, we should acknowledge it as, a, as, as an extreme, extreme position. Wow. Yeah. 
Wow. And you know, when, when someone puts it like that, that it's going to be anything that is then prefaced as extreme is going to be seen as invalid. That's basically what that's like cornering it into. Absolutely. I think that they were trying to create a situation where if I was going to appear uh, on their show, which I did later, um, that they would try to make me look like ridiculous. Like I didn't know what I was talking about, like out of this world. And I do think that they tried to do that. Um, and it obviously didn't work. I think I came, I've come off like, you know, how this idea should come off to anyone like super rational makes a whole lot of sense once you just look at the facts. Right. It, the, uh, one absolute, so many things to say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. For sure. I'm one, 100% one of the first people my partner has brought up in the past, you know, over and over again about defunding the police and particularly about abolishing prisons. And I'm the first one to say like, okay, the the community aspect, like the community responsibility aspect makes sense to me, but what are we going to do with criminals? And because of that, I always halted the conversation. Like I was like not open-minded to stuff at all. And since the last few weeks, everything seems to be so much more rational and there just seemed to be having like there are just so many answers out there and there are people that have thought this through, you know, for fun, philosophically, academically, you know, politically of like, what does this actually look like? What does defunding the police actually look like? But I just wanted to also circle back to the fact that you've had multiple people say that you don't literally mean defund the police when you say <laughs> defund the police. Yeah. Is that correct? I know I like totally literally mean defund, <laughs> defund the police. <laughs> like I understand like very strategically the 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 word defund is kind of ambiguous. I understand that. Uh it is it's strategic that one would use that word because yeah, we want to capture the people who are interested in abolishing the police and we want to capture the people who are interested in a reduction of police services uh, or a reduction in their funding. Um, and an increase to to other services. We want to capture everybody because we mm -hmm. think right now the urgency of like stopping this force that is killing black people and killing indigenous people in this country is is like too much. Like we need to capture everyone who's in favor of some sort of change that would result uh, in less people dying is, is super important. But for mm -hmm. me, honest to God, like I keep asking this question on the air and no one is able to to respond with something that makes sense. It's like, like tell me what the police do well, and I'm open to hearing it. <laughs> and I'm open to considering that maybe they should exist in some some way. But no one can tell me something that the police do well. Not a mm. single thing. The only time, whenever I ask the, that, the only thing that people come back with is always the same. It's like well, rape, and it's like. <laughs> I have some bad news for you people. <laughs> yeah. The police do not prevent rape. And two, they do a really bad job at providing um, services to people who are who, who yeah. experience gender based violence. Only 10 percent of sexual assaults are even reported to the police. Mm. And like, fuck, they they the, there's like all these class action suits against uh, the police and the RCMP for engaging in sexual assault themselves. It's like. No, they don't provide that service. And the other thing that people say is like burglary and theft. And I'm like, people don't know this, but 
they solve less than 16% of cases. Um, And it's like, your insurance company is far more helpful to you than the police. They very rarely are able to solve uh, uh, those cases. So it's like, why are we pouring all of this money into these into the police, if these are the only two things that people can think of that they possibly do well, and the facts show that they don't do them well. So for me, it's like, yeah, like if you can tell me something that they they provide do really well, then sure, I'll I I ha- will be willing to rethink my position. But let me tell you, I've been at this for a while, and I don't think that there is something that they do well. So I'm not sure why we would keep them around. <sighs> my gosh, you're so right. You're so right when you ask that question. And I haven't been, I haven't seen anybody specifically ask that question on social media or in my social space. But I mean, the only things that come up with, I don't know if this happens in America, but in Canada, every construction site that I've you know, walked past like a working construction site when, you know, in the daytime when people are working or, or at nighttime, there, there's usually a cop there. And I, I guess that's for like safety reasons. If a car drives by and accidentally hits someone, I guess there's just someone on site. I don't know why, but I'm like, I guess they do that well. Like, I guess they're there, but I don't even know if they're doing their job well. Like, I don't know, you know, or I guess they dole out parking tickets. Well, like, <laughs> right, but it's like, but it's like, do we need like an do armed need- force to like to deliver do yeah. a parking tickets or to like sit at a construction site? Mm, <laughs> I don't think so. It seems like a waste of cash <laughs> to me. I think that we could provide that uh, much cheaper than the mm-hmm. over a billion dollars that in Toronto mm-hmm. and like in Canada overall. I think it's. Uh, 41 billion is uh, what are or 41 million per day um, that people taxpayers are spending on police it's like we for for construction site like that doesn't make sense to me 100 percent um let's chat a bit about the origin of the police because i think that this actually comes as a big surprise to a lot of people why are the police inherently and historically anti-black yeah, I mean, I, I remember the day that I looked this up and was like, oof, that makes a whole lot of sense. Like, I understand. It it fe- felt like everything came full circle and I understood why uh, the police are the, the way they are. Um, it's It's definitely about what their original purpose was. And so the police are something that was dreamed up in France uh, to to really protect the the property of wealthy men and you know the the idea spread across europe and uh you know it became this service to protect the property of wealthy men and the property of wealthy men included enslaved people um and so when the you know when a lot of uh, settlers came to uh north america of course the role of police officers expanded significantly because there were so many enslaved people building the new world, quote unquote. Um, And so when uh, black people would liberate themselves, uh, the police uh, were used as like slave patrols to kidnap black people and return them uh, Mm. to these masters. And in addition, uh, you know, in again, quote unquote, the new world, um, the police were tasked with clearing the land of indigenous people. And that is a euphemism for genocide, like removing mm. uh, indigenous people from where they were um, and to make space 
for settlers. And so we can see today uh, the continuation of that inherent purpose to control and restrict the movements of Black and Indigenous people. It's like, to this day, uh, there is still a controlling and a restriction of the movements and activities of Black and Indigenous people. Uh, and they can't seem to get away from that origin. That is exactly uh, what their purpose was. And I, I don't think there's ever been a reckoning of like, hey, can we like maybe if we're going to like end enslavement and we're going to mm. change the way that we result, we um, relate to indigenous people, maybe we should get rid of this thing, <laughs> this whole institution over here. Uh, but mm. they, you know, they never have. Yeah. I think that the first thing that comes to people's mind, and you mentioned it earlier, is that when we say defund the police, the idea that some people have is like, we're just throwing safety out the window that historically, or uh, actually presently, we seem, especially in white communities, we see the police as this representation of safety. And that's just not true when you start looking at the facts of things, or when you start looking at who actually is calling the police, first of all, and who actually feels safe doing that, and who doesn't. Like when you start looking at all of that, you start to realize that, oh, there's like, there's this huge gap between safety and like what the cops are actually doing. And so when people say defund the police, it's like the first thing that people think is like, we're going to throw out safety. But like, you know, who am I going to call if there's someone breaking into my house or someone robbing me or someone who's attacking me? Like, and there are some proposals of other individuals who could be showing up to these situations. What are some ideas that you have come across or that, you know, other people are working on? Yeah, that is such an important question because, you know, I, I too had that thought the first time I engaged with this idea. It's like, you know, I know I came to that thought with, I know I can't call the police because it's too dangerous for someone like me and the people that I love. So how, like, how would I engage with some of these uh, issues of safety in our society? And then looking deeper into it, realizing that the police don't provide that safety service. So I've already talked a little bit about like, you know, burglary and theft and sexual assault. So it's like, well, let's think about what happens when we do call the police when something's happening. Um, likely, if you, for example, experience a theft, um, you're not experiencing it like while it's happening. Usually someone will go, you know, who who is uh, seeking to steal from someone is is trying to keep themselves safe as well. And so are are likely engaging in that activity when you're not around. So it's something that you discover afterwards. And then the police will come afterwards. They will take a report from you and they will investigate, hopefully, sometimes. Sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. um, and they only have a certain amount of money to investigate any particular case. And then when that money runs out, they stop investigating. And like I said, they only resolve, um, and I shouldn't even say the word resolve, the, the, they only lay a charge in less than 16% of cases. And uh, like laying a charge doesn't mean that they've solved the issue. And there's like criticism to suggest that they lay more charges um, than makes sense to actually mm. bring that number up <laughs> so, mm. that, so that they look useful. So it's like, okay, they don't do that very well. So what would make sense? Well, 
what if we had like an investigatory service um, where people were experts on research, experts on knowing about how uh, a lack of uh, services uh, that, you know, for example, uh, impact people's ability to live outside of poverty, impact uh, whether or not they're going to seek to engage in theft or something like that. And mm. so that we're able to solve those cases more effectively, but also to invest in things like public housing to reduce um, the likelihood that someone will engage in this really risky behavior when they're experiencing precarity in their own lives. Um, another example is uh, like a, a an emergency mental health service. And, you know, Kenzie, we're talking about this right after, you know, another person was killed uh, in Malton just yesterday night. And mm -hmm. this is a person who, um, I don't know if it was this person who called or whose family members or friends called um, for the police to perform a wellness check. This is someone who is going through some sort of mental health crisis um, and was in his home. The police arrive. They're speaking to him through the door. Eventually, he stops speaking to them. They decide that he is a danger to himself. They've arrived with a canine unit and a tactical force unit. So that's like um, a SWAT type of unit. Mm. They decide that what they're going to do is enter his apartment after he's he stopped talking to them. They put mm. and they did that by putting these massive ladders up outside his balcony and just scaling his balcony and, and showing up on on his balcony. So imagine this. You're already going through a really difficult situation. Mm. All of a sudden, there's a bunch of armed people out, out on your balcony, potentially with dogs. Who knows if they got the dogs up there? I'm not sure. Um, who are demanding that you interact with them. And then they shot him. They shot and killed him. You know, like, God, could you imagine calling for a wellness check for someone that you love? Because you're you are nervous about their well-being. Mm -hmm. And then the people who show up. Like show up, scare them and then kill them. Like, I can't imagine what type of distress that puts on the loved ones who mm -hmm. are so concerned about their family members or friends uh, that they call the police. Shouldn't we have a service that people can call where um, the the people who show up aren't going to be armed uh, and have the ability to kill you or scare you into a more mm -hmm. dangerous situation, but people are going to show up with de-escalation in mind and with the necessary health training and social supports um, that someone who is going through a mental health crisis needs. Mm, oh, absolutely. There are so many layers to that story. I mean, one of the biggest things that I heard during that is like this idea that mentally ill people are always dangerous, that in some way, like that cops always need to be on site with someone who is going through a crisis, like a mental health crisis because they are like they, as if they needed to show up with like a canine unit and like a tactical SWAT team. Like to me, I'm just like that further stigmatize people who are going through something and that makes it seem like 
everything is dangerous. And I'm, and you know, I don't know the percentage of people who do struggle with mental illness who may be doing dangerous things at the same time, but that's also a broader conversation of like where are the mental health resources for them so that way they don't get to that point you know? Well, exactly. And it's like, if we weren't funding the police at these ridiculous <laughs> amounts of money, then perhaps we would be able to afford to put the money together to to create another service where it wasn't the police that we were calling, but it was mental health professionals. And, you know, they've done that in Oregon. They've done that in Stockholm, Sweden. So we know that it's, it's possible. There are mm-hmm. models um, that work. And, you know, currently, uh, Stats can estimates that up to 80% of calls that the police get are not for criminal activities at all. They're for a call for services, which means like, um, you know, maybe an alarm has gone off like from a raccoon or something mm-hmm. <laughs> or like there's some sort of like frustration that people have. And sometimes people will call the police um, instead of engaging with, with one another to solve those uh, frustrations. But the other big thing that they get called for is mental health resources and they don't have the ability to provide that service they just don't Mm -hmm. and like we have to ask ourselves like with that killing last night in malton who were the police protecting you know Mm -hmm. am i more safe are you more safe because they entered this man's personal residence and killed him is he more safe wouldn't it have been better if they didn't show up at all or at least the same, you know, outcome at the very least? Like, I I just, it just seems so obvious um, that we need to prioritize, like, these people, people who suffer from mental health illness uh, or distress, Black people, Indigenous people, our lives have inherent value and we deserve Um, the prioritization of our lives such that we take a look at this service and say, this is not, we cannot continue with this. This is inhumane. Yes, absolutely. I feel like I hear on the opposing side, like there are people who are calling for more body cams. And if we had more body cams, then we would be able to hold people responsible. And I know that that's so laughable after you like, you know, you read into the research and you look at the fact that there are just as many police with body cams as without body cams that are doing fucked up shit. You know, it's like that body cams don't stop poor decision making. Oh, entirely. And it's like, I, you know, there was a time when I thought "Mm, maybe body cameras are a good idea. But the idea behind body cameras is, is that people are looking for a way to hold the police accountable. And that makes sense. Like you would want to be able to hold the police accountable. But it turns out, like if we look at every other accountability measure that we have, whether it's bodies like the Special Investigations Unit in Ontario, which is like a watchdog body um, that charge police when it, well, they're supposed to charge police when it seems as though something's gone wrong in an interaction that has become violent or where someone has died. Like all of these accountability measures that are already in place, the police don't follow them. Like with the case of DeFonte Miller uh, in uh, a suburb of Toronto where um, some police officers beat a black man so badly that he lost his eye, they just didn't report it um, to that watchdog body. And then when a lawyer 
uh, alerted the bo- the watchdog body like years later to be like, hello, um, you guys are supposed to look into this. They found out that the police had just engaged other police to like come up with some sort of report that said that these police officers did nothing wrong. And that is not uncommon. We do not know how often the police engage in this behavior of just trying to um, do away with the accountability measures that we have in place. Um, But even when the SIU or the Special Investigations Unit is uh, engaged in a particular issue, like the police often don't cooperate. They won't provide their notes. They won't be part of interviews. They're just like, we don't have to. We've got the police union to, to protect us. And so the accountability measures that we currently have are fully just failing to mm-hmm. to hold police accountable. They haven't changed the behavior um, that result in uh, more black people dying, more indigenous people dying. So that is one thing to consider when we're thinking about things like body cameras. Like they're it's just not going to change their behavior because they've already shown that any sort of accountability measure that we use Um, does not change their behavior. The other thing which might be more of a surprise to people and something that I've discovered as a law student who's like now reading law review articles on a regular basis is that uh, body cameras actually either one, have zero impact on the police using lethal force or some some reviews um, have shown, some research has shown that it increases the likelihood that the police are going to use lethal force because part of the issue is that the police believe that what they're doing is right. And so when they have the body camera there, they're like, they feel more confident because people will be able to see uh, their reasoning. But what we're saying like, is that the entire philosophy behind Mm. how the police approach some of these situations is completely wrong. And so when they encounter someone who's acting a neurotypically like, someone who, who might be having a mental health crisis and they don't understand how that person is responding to them. Like we're saying the, the entire way that the police are taught to engage with people is incorrect. Uh, whereas um, their training might tell them that, yeah, go ahead, use some sort of force against these people. And so, you know, like body cameras is not going to solve the problem. We don't want to mm-hmm. see more of us dying on camera. We just want <laughs> them to stop killing us. Wow. Absolutely. And like, that's like case in point, you know, and it's, I feel like it's also so tricky trying to like justify those things with, you know, reviewing like legal cases and reviews and research papers where you're like, we already know this from our experience, but then like, here's the data to back it up you know, like I'm showing you that it doesn't like this stuff doesn't work. And you touched on something as well that it's, it's like we haven't abolished the racism mindset. It's like we may have, you know, done with like a few laws and with like outright slavery, but it doesn't mean that we have abolished the mindset and everything like our entire system is predicated on the mindset. It's like built on it. Exactly. And I think that that is so important. It's like, look, these entire institutions are built um, to focus on controlling and restricting um, the activities of Black and Indigenous people. And like, I can prove it to you. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. Like, look, you know, what we're asking for is to live like many of the people who think that this is a ridiculous idea live. Because 
you know, for them, the idea of the police is like a really theoretical idea. They don't interact with the police day to day. What they know of the police probably comes from television shows and maybe the, the evening news. But they don't see the police every day in their neighborhoods. You know, the police aren't patrolling wealthy neighborhoods. They're not patrolling mostly white neighborhoods, mm -hmm. but they are patrolling black neighborhoods. They're patrolling those neighborhoods every day. And that's why we are targeted for carting. That's why we are targeted for um, stops and searches and all sorts of interactions from the police that most people never have to deal with. And it's like, you know, the police are not going to all of a sudden stop and start uh, patrolling some of the wealthiest uh, neighborhoods in our in our cities. Like that's not how they were set up to engage. They are set up to engage in controlling black and indigenous people. And they're going to continue to do that. Like that's that's how the entire system works. Even when we think about cops in schools, uh, you know, when we started working on that campaign back in 2016, we were so shocked to learn about how many uh, parents didn't even know that police were were in schools with their children. And the way that that those programs work is that often they're not universal. They're not in every single school. They're just in the schools, in the school board that kind of overlap with where there are the most black or racialized students uh, in a particular school board. And it's like, come on, like it's all mm -hmm. embedded in the way that they think about policing is it's like, OK, we don't need police at this school over here. Um, where all the white students are, but we do need police at this school all over here where all the black students are. Mm. And you gave a very clear and brilliant example of the current um, issue with the TTC. For those of you listening, that's the transit uh, that's the Toronto Transit Commission. So it's our our transit here in the city. And I'm curious if you could bring up your example of this, because I want to talk about how we can just actually reframe our thinking when it comes to criminalization and when it comes to stopping criminalization in general, because that will also alleviate this quote unquote need for policing in general. Yeah, this is like, you know, when you say the idea decriminalize, people often become very confused. I'm really happy that you're asking this question. It's like, um, like, imagine this. Um, and you, you don't even have to imagine. You can look up the YouTube videos uh, that uh, the police right now in, in Toronto patrol uh, the streetcars, the buses um, and the trains to make sure that people have their proof of purchase, like to, to prove that they have actually paid for their ridership, their ability to ride. And those special constables, as they're called, have often engaged in uh, police brutality against particular people. Um, there's some videos um, that have gone viral of uh, transit cops beating up young black people. Mm. And it's like, man, they're, they're beating on these people because maybe they don't have uh, their proof of purchase. They didn't have the $3 or $3.25 or whatever it is these days to, to ride uh, transit, but still needed to go somewhere. So hopped on. It's like for me, uh, I have definitely uh, in the past when I've you know been really down uh, on money, but still needed to get to work or still needed to get to school, figured out ways to get on the TTC without paying. And when we are sending police after those people, like we are sending police after people who just 
don't have the ability to pay three bucks. We are criminalizing poverty. Mm. And it's like, man, we're spending so much money on the police, making sure that they can go after people who can't afford to spend $3 to go somewhere, when instead we could defund the police, put more money into transit. So like, just so everybody knows right now, in Toronto, we're spending $1.1 billion on the police. And for transit, we're spending just over $700 million, okay? Imagine if we were able to, and that's, that's taxpayer dollars, okay? So overall, the budget of the TTC is like $2 billion, but that, the, the, the money that makes up getting to the $2 billion uh, from the $700 million is, is fees. It's, it's the three mm-hmm. bucks that we're forced to pay every single time we got on. Well, imagine if we were to take some of the funding that we currently put into police and put it instead into the TTC such that, I don't know, maybe we're able to make transit free. And then Mm. we wouldn't even need police. We wouldn't even need any enforcement body to go after these people who are just too poor to be able to afford the three bucks in the first place. Like, why are we wasting money criminalizing Mm. people when instead we could be putting that money into making transit either affordable or free? Absolutely. And then you can draw on to, you know, your own conclusions about other issues that involve criminalization or involve other issues of crime. Like if somebody, you know, goes and robs a convenience store, are they in a place of like, are they doing that because they're pushed into a place of poverty, into a place of, you know, trauma, into a place of thinking like, that's my only viable way of staying like economically relevant. Like that's the only way that I can survive is by doing this. It's like, well, how do we stop that from happening in general? So then that way we just don't even have to get to the place of calling someone. Like how do we just stop people from either doing crimes or the crimes existing in general? And it seems like a lot of things should be more and more legal. And it seems like a lot of things should just be decriminalized in general. And it should be that more people have like economic help, like way more financial help. Absolutely. I mean, think about, you know, um, the amount of money that we put into public health. It's really, really low. The amount of money that we put into public health is like less than 25 or less than 2% of Toronto's taxpayer dollars are spent on public health. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that could mean that, like, as an example, if we were to put, you know, 25% goes into policing, less than 2% into public health. If we spent more money on public health uh, for people who maybe uh, are engaged in drug use to the point where it affects their public health, uh, ex- affects their health, and instead of criminalizing those people who are engaged in drug use, but instead focusing on helping people who need it, Uh, we, again, wouldn't need so many police um, to enforce these laws that actually don't keep us safe. What they do is is they they drive people who are engaged in that type of, you know, a use of drugs underground and um, make it less safe for those particular people when they are engaged in drug use. Like we can instead defund the police, put more money into public health, and engage with people who are in, engaging in drug use, much like we've started to engage with people who've been, uh, uh, who 
uh, are affected by the opioid crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Through a public health perspective, rather than criminalizing people, arresting them and putting them in jail, which doesn't, it's very costly and it doesn't really help anyone. If we put more money into food banks and into public housing, then perhaps we wouldn't have to have all of these laws that criminal that essentially criminalize poverty. Um, mm -hmm. And we could, we could put more money into those places if we weren't putting so much money into the police. I think that's a really great takeaway from that is the criminalizing poverty element of it. And consistently for people in, in, you know, uh, of like privileged places to be asking, we need to be asking ourselves and each other, like, why is someone going on the TTC and not paying? Why is someone taking money from someone else when it's not theirs? Why is someone having an opioid addiction? Like asking ourselves like the why questions and like really looking at it as like a systemic issue and looking at it as like a historical thing, factoring in all of those to then give you that like rich narrative of the fact that it's not just like a bad person or it's not just like someone who, you know, just can't get their act together with addiction. It's like a whole slew of things. And so it's like a very complicated issue. I'm curious to chat about the sort of like the affirmative actions that some people are or some cities are taking. Um, in particular in Toronto, two councillors have mentioned that at the next city meeting, they will be motioning to take away 10% of Toronto City's budget for police. I'm curious, do you think like that stuff is a start or do you think that this is actually going to be a way to hush people, you know, and have people quiet down and have things stop being so radical and so activated right now? Or do you think like this is a fair start? Like, uh, that's a hard question because it's like, mm -hmm. look, I'm encouraged by the fact that uh, policymakers who have real power are like, okay, let's let's see what we can do um, to engage on this issue. It means that the amount of bodies that have been on the streets lately demanding a change have had some sort of impact on policymakers. But quite frankly, I don't think that 10% does anything much. Like the police budgets increase every year a lot, a lot. And they don't go towards making us safer or improving any of the measures that we've talked about today, uh, what they go towards are things like, you know, now they've got stingray machines where they can listen in on our cell phone conversations. And now mm. they've got, um, they're, you know, seeking to use more facial recognition technology and they have a sound cannon that they can use against people. It's a machine that like can rupture your eardrums where, you know, like it's not a machine that they actually use, but they've they've got it. <laughs> a bunch of different police departments have like tanks and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, I think a couple of years ago, the Toronto police uh, bought assault style military weapons. Um, it's like, why, 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 why? We don't need any of that stuff. And to only reduce by 10% is kind of an endorsement of the rest of uh, how much all of that money has gone into all of these other types of equipment and tactics that the police have beefed up over the years. I I think that that is not enough. It's ineffective. Uh, and, uh, you know, my organization, BLM, is calling for immediate 50% reduction at least so we can start building some of these new organizations and services that we need. And we think that, you know, like COVID during a time when we're slow, slowing down as an, as like a society, 
uh, makes a lot of sense for us to, to do that right now. And, you know, we've seen the federal government during the time of COVID created over three dozen new federally administered services. So like, I think that we can do this quickly if we actually prioritize Black and Indigenous lives. Like, I really think we can. And so for me, 10% isn't enough. But, you know, there are places around the country like Owen Sound, for example, a counselor is um, suggesting a 30% reduction, which to me sounds like a whole lot better than 10%. You know, in Minneapolis, they've taken uh, a motion to to just dismantle their police department. You know, I I think we need to to seriously consider bigger movement. And I know that like in Toronto, the, tr- the city councillors actually don't have a lot of power. It's the province who's been really quiet, who really mm-hmm. has the power um, to shift these budgets. So, you know, I think it's time to see more. And like, if we don't, I mean, what does that say? Like, I have never seen so many people on the streets uh, for an issue before. Like this, mm-hmm. this is like unprecedented from White Horse to PEI to Victoria and all across the major and even really small cities in Canada, there has been a demand for, sh- for a shift. And if politicians don't respond, then what does that say about the state of our democracy? And what does it say about the way that we devalue systemically Black and Indigenous lives in this country? I think mm-hmm. it would say a lot. Absolutely. You make a really fantastic point when you talk about like the 10% versus 50%. Obviously, 50% would allow, you know, the the ideas and the different programs that would could be put in place. Um, 50% would allow those programs to really be uplifted and executed quite fast. And I think that that's a really important point to note because let's say Toronto police is taken the the police budget is taken away by 10%. If people who want to implement those programs and implement like, you know, different professions to show up to different crises, if they don't get the funding right away or if stuff doesn't happen right away, it can almost like look bad because I feel like people will see stuff as if like, oh, see like nothing's happening you know, what, like they've cut police budget and like still nothing is happening with these alternative programs or these like alternative professions showing up to different 911 calls or whatnot. And so I feel like that could almost be used against the movement and against the motion for it. And so you make a really good point with like, if you cut 50%, then there's a whole lot more that we can do and we can be, it can happen even faster right now with the fact that things kind of seem to be frozen in time with COVID. Right. And it's like, remember what I said earlier, like up to 80% of the calls that the police get are not about anything criminal. (laughs) So it's Mm -hmm. like, if that's what they're doing with 80% of their time, like, oh, there is no better time than the present. (laughs) Like, let's just get into this. If it's not going to actually affect our safety right now and our ability to provide safety and security to our society, and we've been through the arguments, right? Like, they're not providing that safety and security for, um, for theft, for burglary, for sexual assault, for even for violent crime, because violent crime still happens. You know, they're when they're engaging in violent crime, they're responding to it, right? Like all of these things that they are not providing those services and 80% of their services has nothing to do with crime and they're killing indigenous people and they're killing mm-hmm. black people and they're killing people who have mental health crises. It's like, 
what are we afraid of? Like, let's defund them by 50 percent. Like, you know, many people who even who are like, look, but what about violent crime? Like, what about stopping people like the Nova Scotia uh, shooter or Robert Pickton or uh, Bruce MacArthur? It's like they didn't stop those people. They responded to those people and quite frankly, did a poor job of investigation. And it looks like they may have been involved in the uh, the person who is responsible uh, for the for the Nova Scotia massacre. And then if we were talking about something like an example, like uh, Alex Manassian, um, which was the mm-hmm. Toronto van attack, where it's like, OK, great, we actually do need a violence intervention team of some sort. I don't think it should be connected to police. I think we should restart the whole thing. But 50 percent, it's not like a 50 percent reduction isn't going to take away from our ability to provide uh, a violence intervention in the meantime while we're building other stuff. Right. Mm, so yeah. we might as well do it. We might as well do it. Yeah, for sure. And you literally laid all of that out. And I was going to ask about if you wanted to take on the question, um, because I also just know that, you know, it's not like you're necessarily a policymaker or that you have all of the answers. But I did want to ask, like, what do you think should happen in a violent crime situation? Like, the, you know, the Nova Scotia shooter, Alec Manassian, what should happen, you know, in those moments or like anything that involves, let's say like a weapon, like a gun, you know, and you're saying you're like, I'm not saying nobody should show up. I'm not saying that like there shouldn't be a number for for people to call. It's that let's create an actual unit, a, a, a profession that actually does it well like, you know, that's specialized enough that does it well, that isn't also taking up $1 billion of a city's budget and only responding to those crimes like 0.05% of the time. Right. I mean, like, let's take a look right now at like the Robert Pickton, uh, who killed, um, murdered over 49 women over 20 years, most of whom were Indigenous. The police did not, like, there are there's a lot of criticism about how the police did not take that situation seriously because the majority of those women were indigenous. Same with like a similar situation with Bruce MacArthur, who is a serial killer um, who was targeting uh, queer racialized men in Toronto's uh, queer community. And the police outright came out and said there is no serial killer here, even though people in the community were like, there is something happening. Like we we know like these men are disappearing. Mm. and. Uh, you know, it wasn't until it was someone who was a white man who went missing that the police started taking it more seriously and discovered that indeed there was a serial killer who they, you know, had failed to to properly investigate for years. And it's like, you know, the police just not caring about certain types of victims, again, shows how they undervalue particular people in our society. Let's have an mm-hmm. investigatory force who you know, isn't going to like look at the, these types of victims and say, "Ugh, not important. They probably just disappeared because what they like racialized people and indigenous people. We just disappear ourselves like that doesn't make any sense. Mm, yeah. Um, and for for cases like like serious violent crime, I, you know, I, I keep thinking back to the Quebec massacre in Quebec City mm-hmm. where people, you know, experience this terrible crime the they called the police and when the police showed up even though they gave a description of this man and said you know like this uh this this white young person has done this and has um left in this car the police started to apprehend some of the brown people who'd experienced the 
heinous situation in the mosque because they just couldn't think that uh, the, the the person who would be responsible for this was the person that they were describing. Can you imagine going through something so horrific and then being taken by the police yourself? Like just because the police have this idea of who the perpetrators are in our society. Like that's mm. so disgusting to me. Like I think that we can create a body where the type of training that the that the the people go through are far more than like the 24 uh weeks uh that it is in Toronto like who who mm -hmm. understand like fundamentally uh what you know someone who is engaging in violent crime like mm -hmm. what the psychology might be about what certain types of uh intervention me measures should be considered like i just i think that the the way that we're leaving it right now is far too dangerous for people it it allows for the de the continued devaluation of certain identities in our society and again way too expensive it's like so small um you know this this violent intervention like it, it's such a small part of what the police do and it certainly doesn't cost 1.1 billion dollars Oh, so perfectly said. To finish off, you mentioned that in 2014, we were finally ready to talk about anti-Black racism. And then in 2016, we were finally ready to talk about carding. And now in 2020, we're finally ready to talk about defunding the police. So I'm not that CBC producer. I'm like all down for the radical ideas. So I'm really, really curious. What do you think is the next radical thing that people aren't yet ready to talk about, but that might be talked about in two years from now or four years from now? Well, honestly, like getting rid of the whole prison system, like there's a whole other thing to talk about. Um, you know, who most of the people who are incarcerated right now are not people who were arrested for any sort of violence or who were arrested because they uh, pose some sort of safety risk to the rest of society. It's mostly stuff like, you know, like little theft or um, drug convictions. You know, there's still a bunch of people who are incarcerated for marijuana convictions and that mm -hmm. is now legal in Canada and they're still incarcerated. Um, the majority of people who are incarcerated do not pose any risk to the rest of us in society. And, you know, like the, the way that we engage uh, in incarceration and in policing means that the mo majority of people who are filling up our prisons are black, are indigenous, mm -hmm. are uh, people who are in detention because they've crossed the border in a particular way and are, uh, you know, fleeing uh, some sort of unsafe situation elsewhere. It's like, uh, we really need to think of, rethink the way that we think about safety and security in our society because what we think keeps us safe is actually not keeping us safe. They're just endangering and terrorizing whole other communities. So that's the next piece, I think. For sure, for sure. That'll be 2024 when everyone hops on that bandwagon <laughs> every Let's four years. Sooner. Let's hope it's sooner. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, like, this has been the last few weeks, it's been the largest civil rights movement in history. And I feel like I and you know, like, I can't, I can't, I can't definitely I can't say, but it definitely I'm curious to see if conversation moves faster now, because of the conversations that have been having that have been had in the last few weeks. 
Well, I I think that it has been moving very quickly. Like I can't the 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 way that we've been able to talk about defunding the police on the air and even broaching the conversation of abolishing the police on the air um, has it's moved so rapid fire. Like there are people who I know who have like the sensibility about defunding the police, maybe academics who are really careful about the way that they approach talking about it, who were calling me like, oh, my God, like people are super ready for like the fullness of this conversation. Mm -hmm. I can't believe it. Like who were, you know, the weekend after George Floyd was killed, it was like on a Monday we're saying, oh, we should reconsider the way that we allocate budgets. And then by Friday, we're like, no, we need to defund the police because this (laughs) is what they're doing. Right. Because the conversation moves so quickly. This was really an example of mass education in a way that I haven't really ever seen before. Like I cannot Mm. think of a comparable situation. And I just think it's like, I mean, the cost is far too high for us to have been able to have this conversation, Mm -hmm. but the, the impacts that we have been able to have on people changing their minds, the amount of email we BLM has gotten 60,000 emails, BLM Toronto. So I can only imagine BLM globally has gotten 60,000 emails in the last two weeks, 60,000. And most of them are people being like, you blew my mind. Like we've never thought about this in this way before. Very Mm. few of these emails are like what we were getting in 2014 and 2016, which was a lot of hate mail and like death threats. We haven't seen that like 95% of these emails are positive responses of people being like, oh my God, the way you've gotten me to think Mm. about safety. I I just feel like I've learned something so new. And that to me is just like, oh, what an impact uh, that people have had over the last couple of weeks. It's phenomenal. Oh, I just got chills. That is, that must feel so good on the receiving end to get sick, you know, to get 60,000 emails, 95% of which are positive. Yeah, it feels almost impossible. It really mm-hmm. does. So, you know, like I said, the cost is too high. But I am mm-hmm. glad that there's an opportunity in this moment to really shift both culture, like how we think culturally about the police and possibly policy, like how our lives will be impacted by this moment in time. Sandy, how can our listeners support you and what can they do after this podcast episode if there's a site or any type of like digital resource that they can go to to learn more about defunding the police? Great question. Please, please, please go to defundthepolice.org. We'll be updating that website as much as possible with new information. But right now, what you can find is uh, the the arguments that we've talked about today and even a few more um, on the site. Uh, So just some education for you if you're still struggling with some of the, the ideas of how defunding the police will impact us. Um, You'll find also on that website information from cities across Canada and the United States of how much money uh, city budgets are currently allocating to police. So I was shocked to find out that uh, in Victoria, B.C., 40 percent of the city's budget is currently allocated towards the police. And that information is on that website. We've hired a couple of fantastic researchers who are uh, putting all of that information to together for us as quickly as possible. And you'll also find on that website uh, different resources that you can go to to take action. So if you're Canadian, it'll direct you to um, defund.ca. 
where you can uh, send uh, an email to your city councilor, MPP and MP. Uh, if you're American, you can go, you'll be directed to the Movement for Black Lives page where you can find more information about uh, what types of action you can take. And honestly, just keep talking. Keep talking about this issue with people in your family. If you are in a class right now or, uh, or some sort of educational setting, talk about it with your classmates. If you uh, are religious and uh, attend some sort of religious institution regularly, see if you can address your congregation to talk about it. Because, you know, the, the biggest pieces here is shifting policy and shifting the way people think. And if we can convince uh, the people around us about how important this issue is, that's going to make a huge impact. And if we can do what we can to, to shift our policymakers uh, into taking some sort of action, that's really going to shift the conditions and under which Black and Indigenous people are living. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being here today. I will absolutely put the www.defundthepolice.org in the show notes, as well as where can people find you online? Oh, I am in a few places. I'm on uh, Facebook and you can follow me on Facebook. That's open. So I think it's just like, you know, facebook.com slash Sandy M. Sandy dot M dot Hudson. On Instagram, I'm at Sandy M. Hudson. And on Twitter, I'm at Sandela. So that's S-A-N-D-E-L-A. -E Wonderful. We'll definitely put all of that in the show notes. Thank you again, Sandy. Thank you so much, Kenzie, for having me and for really um, doing a deep dive into this issue. It's just so, so important. I really feel like you were able to answer everything like in one of those academic ways, but you simplified it so that way everybody could understand, which is so important because I know that my listeners come from all different types of learning backgrounds and comes from backgrounds of, you know, not having any knowledge into this except for the last few weeks. And so you're such a fantastic speaker and I just really appreciate your work. Thank you. All right, friends, you made it to the end of the episode. You know what to do now. Head over to our Instagram account, Conversations with Kenzie, and let us know what you loved about the episode. Or let us know what you didn't love. What questions did we miss? What questions could we have asked differently? Let us know there. As always, stay curious, keep asking questions, and keep making conversations in your everyday life. Until next time.